0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, and verses 1 through 14. Romans chapter 6, and verses 1 through 14. You'll find the passage on page 942. And we come again to this section of Romans after a break of some four or five weeks. And I want to read in again from Romans chapter 6 verse 1. Remind ourselves that Paul had ended chapter 5 with this statement about the way in which the increase of man's sin has in fact received the response of the increase of God's grace. Verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And this raises the question, beginning of chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old man was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members, that is the members of your body, to sin as instruments for righteous, for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace." We're coming this evening to the last few verses of this section. In Romans 6, which some of you will remember uh, we were considering, I think, five or six Sunday evenings ago. And actually, it provides us, as I hinted this morning, with an excellent point to re-enter Paul's letter to the Romans. Right at the very beginning, we said that studying Romans was the spiritual equivalent of climbing Mount Everest and at least as I gather, if you're going to climb Mount Everest, you don't just put on your rucksack one day and keep climbing. You climb and you establish base camps, and then you climb a little and sometimes come back to base camp, and then you continue the climb until, like Sir Edmund Hillary and Sharpa Tenzing, you find your way to the top of the highest mountain in the world. And this is certainly, it seems to me, the highest mountain that the Apostle Paul has for us to climb. And so it may be helpful to us, as I hinted, I think, at one of the services this morning, if we begin with one of my famous little quizzes. And here is the question. Something radical changes in these verses in Romans that we have just read, especially towards the end of the passage. Something radically new happens, something that has not happened thus far in five chapters and the opening verses of Romans chapter 6. And my question in the quiz is, what is this dramatic change that takes place near the end of this section. Now, you know the answer, don't you? It's actually a very obvious answer, but perhaps so obvious that you're not quite able to see it. And so, just in case there's anyone in the room who can't quite see it, let me just slowly get you there remind you what Paul's letter to the Romans is all about. You're thinking this question is simply an excuse for us to rehearse what the letter to the Romans is all about. You are only partly correct, but you are partly correct. The apostle Paul in chapter 1 had told these Romans how keen he was to visit them. It was something that had been on his heart just like people all over the world have this aspiration to visit Columbia, South Carolina. The Apostle Paul had this aspiration. Rome was one of those places you need to see before you die, because it was the epicenter of the Roman Empire. And Paul knew that the gospel had not only penetrated into Rome, he knew that the gospel had actually penetrated into the imperial household. And naturally, as a man whose passion to see the gospel spread, he was concerned not only to see how it spread geographically, but how it spread into the very heart of the Roman Empire and to see what God was doing there in Rome. And he was concerned to do this, but he had often been hindered. But now he has he feels he has fulfilled the mission mandate that God had given to him through the church at Antioch when they had sent him out as their apostle, and he's now looking westwards to Spain, as he tells us towards the end of the letter to the Romans in chapter fifteen. And this amazing little man who has been all round the Mediterranean area and has seen his ministry fulfilled there and churches planted where they hadn't been planted, he's now looking westwards to what in some senses must have been for him virtually the end of the world. And he wants to take the gospel as far as Spain. And his plan is this, As he goes to Spain, he's going to go to Spain through Italy. And he gives them a little hint, a gentle hint, but it's a real hint. I want to come to you in the fullness of the gospel. And he tells them this only towards the end of the letter. It's like your mother writing to you all these interesting things. And then at the end of the letter, she says, now remember, remember this. Paul says, I hope that you will send me on my way just a very gentle way of saying, I hope you'll be with me. I hope you become my second Antioch and and be partners in the gospel as the gospel goes to Spain. But he's never been in Rome. Most of the Roman believers have never met him. They've heard all kinds of rumors about him, and one of the rumors they've heard about him is that he actually distorts the gospel, I wonder if you knew that, the Apostle Paul was accused of distorting the gospel. And one of the ways in which he was accused of distorting the gospel was by preaching too much about the grace of God. And people were saying, if you, if you preach that God's saving grace is so free, some of those who had been brought up in the Jewish community were saying it, if you preach that the gospel is so free that you don't need to be circumcised, you don't need to keep the food laws, if you keep preaching that freeness in God's grace, people will begin to say, well, I believe in the grace of God, and they'll go on and live any way they want. And so there were those who were anxious that the apostle Paul was distorting the gospel. And so one of the things he has to do and he uses a phrase to describe it twice, and once in chapter 2, then almost at the end of the letter in chapter 16, he expounds to the Romans what he calls my gospel. This is the gospel that I preach, and its theme, as we've seen in chapter 1 verses 16 to 17, is the saving power of God I want to go to Rome to be with you to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of it, because the gospel is the saving, transforming power of God. And the reason it is so, he says, is because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, and it is received by faith. And we know that in many ways that simple idea, God's salvation is a manifestation of God's righteousness, is the underlying theme of these sixteen chapters. And it gives us a, a series of pegs on which we can hang everything that Paul says. Chapter 1, verse 18 to 320, he expounds how righteousness is lacking in man. None is righteous. No, not one. We all stand under the judgment and the condemnation of God for our unrighteousness. But the marvel is this, that God has provided that righteousness that we lack in Jesus Christ. I have a friend from a former congregation I served, which gives you the chance to guess one out of two. And uh, he was a drug addict, and he was marvelously converted. He used to say to me half-jokingly, I thought it was half-joking, I think he was dead serious. Big man, he would say, I'm going to take your job one day. And sure enough, he's become a preacher of the gospel. One of the things I remember hearing him on an occasion say is this, if you are dirty and you are going to become clean, something else needs to become dirty. If you are dirty and you are going to become clean, something else needs to become dirty. That's what happens when you wash your hands, isn't it? That's what happens when Duff goes off with Christy and she won't hold hands with him because his hands are dirty. Go and wash your hands. But when he washes his hands, the water will become dirty. Now, that's the gospel, isn't it? in order for me to be washed clean someone else needs to become dirty in order that we might become the righteousness of god says the apostle in second corinthians 5:21 god made him to be sin although he knew no sin himself and so paul says god has provided the righteousness that we need not by personal improvement on our part, but by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So the righteousness that's lacking has been provided in Jesus Christ, and now says Paul, particularly in chapter 5 verse 1 through to 8, 39, that righteousness that is provided in Christ is received by us transforms the whole of our lives. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he begins to show how that righteousness of God is actually vindicated in the way in which God has brought His salvation right into the whole sphere of human history. And then in chapters 12 through 16, how that righteousness is applied to our lives in the changed lives Christians live as they give themselves to the Lord righteousness lacking, righteousness provided, righteousness received, righteousness vindicated, righteousness applied. Now, back to my question. If that is what Paul is doing in his exposition of the gospel in Romans, now is that enough time for you to think over my question again? What is it That rather dramatically happens towards the end of this section this evening. Well, let me give you a clue. This, I think, is sermon number 36 in our Roman series. And there's something in these verses 10 through 14. That hasn't appeared in any of the verses that precede them. I wonder if you've got it. Let me give you the clue in a different form. In the first 149 verses of Romans, if my arithmetic is correct, there is no clear example of this to be found. So, what is it? I wonder if you've spotted it. Answers on a postcard. It's this. In these verses, from verse 10 through verse 14, and he creeps up in it in verse 10, he begins to express it in verse 11, and then he makes it clear in verse 12 this is the first place in the whole of the letter to the Romans where Paul tells the Romans there is something they need to do. Isn't that interesting? That throughout this whole section in Romans, now for the very first time, Paul, as it were, is taking in a deep breath and he's saying, now here's what you need to do. And the first thing you need to do, verse 11, is that you must consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, that's significant for this reason, because you don't consider with your hands or with your feet. You consider with your mind. And the apostle is saying the very first thing I need to do as a Christian believer and all the way through my Christian life as I try to embrace the truth of the gospel in all its fullness and in all its glory and the marvelous teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing I need to do is to think. That's why later on he's going to say in chapter 12 and verses 1 to 2, that the secret of the transformation of a person's life by the gospel lies in the mind, not in the emotions, although it touches them, not even in the will by, as it were, clutching our fingers into fists and saying, I will do it, but the key thing lies in the way in which the life is transformed by the renewing of the mind. And when we begin to consider these things, that is to say, when it dawns on us as we meditate on them, as we take these truths of the gospel in, once they begin to weigh on our minds, then they begin to produce imperatives for our lives. And they're very radical imperatives. Verse 12, don't let sin reign." Verse 13, don't present your members to sin, and later on, present your members to God as instruments for righteousness." Now in these few minutes this evening, let me just point up some general considerations that I want to draw from this principle, and some particular considerations. General considerations, first of all, it's always valuable for us to do this. Always important for us to see the gospel works in a particular way, and it's not necessarily the way we naturally think. Now, it's interesting how people get that when they become Christians But they sometimes don't get it throughout the whole course of the Christian life. We understood that in order to become Christians, we had to stop our confused thinking about what it meant to be a Christian. Some of us thought if we tried to live a decent enough life, then we would qualify for God's grace. And when we began to grasp the gospel, we grasped, we understood that it's actually the other way around, that the grace of God comes to us freely in Jesus Christ, and that's what changes our lives. But it's amazing how often, as we go on in the Christian life, we go back to the old way of thinking, that now what we do is struggle and try our very best to be pleasing to the Heavenly Father and lose sight of the fact that there is this ocean of grace into which God wants us to sink our lives that will support us in the Christian life. And that's why Paul has gone to great lengths without actually spelling out the principle to demonstrate the principle. And that's how we often learn things. It's one thing for the teacher to put the principle on the board. It's the other thing for the principle to come right into the very warp and woof of our thinking. He spent all this time, can you believe it? that if all we'd done had been spell out what the Apostle Paul has said to this point in Romans chapter 6, for thirty-five sermons you would never have heard me say, now here is something you need to do. Isn't that amazing? But you see, there's a tremendously important point to that. And the tremendously important point is that that's how the gospel actually works in our lives. Now, you see, when you grasp this, you begin to see that so much pseudo-Christian teaching and so much pseudo-Christian writing is actually a thinly disguised form of self-help, don't you? It's not the gospel at all. And so Christians are either busy trying to reformulate their lives, or they're almost crushed to death because they don't seem to be able to do the things that you need to do. And the reason is, beloved believers, because we put the cart before the horse, and we burden our consciences and others' consciences with all the tricks in the trade about the things that we need to do. Now, dear ones, we're good at doing things. There are two things we're good at. We're good about talking, and we're good about doing things. But the thing most of us are not so good at is sinking ourselves down into the comprehended and comprehensive riches of God's grace that sustain the imperatives of the gospel. Now, you see, that's why we stumble and fall so often in the Christian life, because either we are bringing to bear upon our own lives or others are heaping our consciences with the things I ought to do as a Christian believer without providing the groundwork, the underpinnings, the strength of grace that will sustain me and enable me to do these things. And that's what Paul has been doing all along. He's never once turned to these Romans and said, now here's what you need to do, All the way along, he's been saying, now do you understand the gospel? Do you understand the grace of God? Are you sinking yourself into the ocean of His grace? And you see, it's when that happens, actually, that two things follow. One, our lives begin to be transformed by the truth. And number two, we begin to see that the riches of Christ's grace is able to sustain us in a dark and fallen world in times of weakness and need. I was in a telephone conference during the course of this past week with a group of men, some of whose names you would probably recognize. And among other things, we were talking about the books that we're writing or the books that we aren't writing. One of these friends was Jerry Bridges, who's been here. Many of us have read his books and appreciate him greatly. He's a man whom God has very signally used. And Jerry was saying, you know, it's 31 years, I think, since he wrote his Probably his way best selling book into the millions now, probably in many languages, on the pursuit of holiness. He said, I'm writing the book I wish I'd written then, he said. He said, because I want to put more gospel into it. Now, you understand by gospel, he didn't mean the sinner's prayer, he meant the riches of God's grace. That is able to sustain us in the pursuit of holiness. Now, that is a marvelous book. I suppose Jerry Bridges may be the only man in the world who has ever said about that book, it needs to have more grace in it. But you see what he's saying, really? He's saying, you can never come to an end of grace, you can never say, I've had enough grace. You can never say, I've got the gospel wrapped up now, I need to get on to higher things or deeper things. You know, sometimes we are deluded into thinking that. What I need is deeper teaching, I need the higher teaching. No, you don't need the higher teaching or the deeper teaching, you need the biblical teaching. And that biblical exposition that the apostle has given to us in this amazing way, it's not a quick fix. But you are old enough now as Christians to have learned, never to be tricked by the quick fix, haven't you, but by the truth of the gospel as it transforms your mind and enables you to sink yourself into lavish servings of God's grace in Jesus Christ. but then more particularly, remember the gospel pattern that Paul has employed in Romans 6. I think I mentioned this six weeks ago, and so I don't expect that you will remember it, but there's a clear pattern in his thinking here. First of all, there's the proposition. Christian believers who are marked as Christian believers, they've been baptized. Christian believers are those who have died to sin and he expounds what it means to have died to sin. And then he says, now that I've expounded this truth to you, consider this to be true about yourself. And that's precisely where we find ourselves, isn't it, in verse 11? So, you also. It's the end of that principle and its exposition. So, he says, have you got this in place? Are you clear about this? So, you also must consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, because that's what it means to be a baptized Christian believer. I have a friend. um, I admit I haven't seen him, I don't know, for how many years. He, He is an Asian And I remember when I got to know him a little, his name is Timothy. And I'd always thought, you don't look like a Timothy to me. And I said to him, what's your real name? And he said, Timothy. I said, come on, did your parents call you Timothy? Oh, no, 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 he said. That's the name I was given at my baptism." I've thought about him, marvelous Christian, absolutely marvelous, fragrant Christian. And I've thought about him so much because, you see, if you ask him who he is, he doesn't come out with these Chinese letters because that isn't who he is. That's who he was in Adam. But Timothy is who he is in Jesus Christ. Now, notice For my friend, that isn't just a a change at the semantic level. It's not as though he really thinks of himself behind all the English with as zhu, zhu, whatever it might be. No, he thinks of himself as Timothy. Now, here's the issue for Paul, and here's the question for me. Do I consider myself when somebody says to me, who are you as a Christian? Who are you really, Sinclair Ferguson? Do I instinctively respond by saying, if you really want to know, I am somebody who has died with Jesus Christ in whose life my relationship with the old family of Adam has been radically brought to an end and I've been brought into such a union with Jesus Christ that I share in His dying to sin and in His rising and resurrection power and grace. That's the most fundamental way in which I think about myself. Now, we understand that baptism is a naming ceremony. You're baptized into the name. And just as when somebody says to me, Who are you? My instinct at that level is to say, My name is Sinclair Ferguson. The Apostle Paul is saying, Once you have been baptized into Jesus Christ, you need to learn to have the instinct. And you don't get this by any amount of water. Do you? You get this only by considering the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word that teaches you what has happened to you in Jesus Christ, that's symbolized by baptism that you have this instinct to say, the most basic thing about my life is, I once was in Adam, I'm now in Christ because I'm somebody. And Paul even uses this kind of language, I belong to the category of individuals this is the kind of person I am as a Christian believer. I'm somebody who has died to the old realm of sin, even though I'm still surrounded by sin and sinners. And even although sin is still present in my heart, and I struggle as I overcome that, in some instances, long-term addiction to sin, but the basic truth about me is that I've died to the dominion of sin, and I've been raised into newness of life. And I'm part of this glorious new creation that God has brought in, in Jesus Christ. Now, here are some more questions for us as we come to a close this evening. Are you willing to give time to thinking about this? Do you know many of you who are sitting beside each other are married to each other, especially the ladies. Let me ask you, how many times after you were married when you were going to write your name, you wrote your maiden name? It took time to get used to your new identity and then to begin to work it out. And maybe one of the ways in which you did that was by fingering your wedding band. And here Paul is saying, think about the significance of your baptism. It will help you. You've died to the old dominion of sin. You're no longer under its authority. You've been set free in Jesus Christ. Yes, sin still dwells in you, but it's no longer your master or your king. Jesus Christ is. It takes time for this to dawn upon me. You don't listen to this once and say, Well, that was a pretty crummy sermon. I didn't get it. Somebody said to me at the church door. Sometime in June, I think they were I think they were wanting to encourage me that they were really getting into Romans chapter six. They said, I've just finished reading Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones' sermons on Romans chapter six. Now he has 14 sermons on Romans 6, 1 through 14. That's four and a half months. If you think I preach long sermons, You should have listened to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Those were hour-long sermons. That was fourteen hours. Now, when somebody says to you, I've just finished reading Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you can either be very encouraged or you can be very discouraged. (laughs) I've only preached a a modest three sermons. I think Dr. Lloyd-Jones was right. I think it takes most of us four and a half months or more for this to dawn upon us that we've been given a glorious new identity in Jesus Christ. And so, I I need to think this through. I need to work at it. I need to meditate on this passage. I need to say, Lord, help me clearly to understand what you're saying here, and help me rightly to consider myself as somebody who has died to the dominion of sin and been raised into newness of life, so that that will be part of the way in which I think about my very being and identity in this world, just as really and truly as when you go throughout the world, you you think of yourself as an American. And everybody around you who sees you and hears you thinks, there goes another American. I thought that, quite frequently when we were in Scotland last month, there goes another American. You see. And as you begin to think about yourself this way, you begin to hold yourself this way. You begin to speak with this accent that you're no longer in the old kingdom, you're in the new kingdom in Jesus Christ. Well, Let me ask you a second question. I wonder if you are suffering from an identity crisis or perhaps even a loss of identity. Back to June, which was the last time we were in these verses, uh, one of the members in our church invited Neil Mathias and Duff James and myself on our day off to go and play golf with him. It happened to be a day when I think it was about 100 degrees. And my recollection is as the four of us completely dehydrated, had just finished playing I think the 16th hole, Duff turned to me, he said, how many shots did you take there? And I turned to him and said, Duff, I don't even know how I got here. <laughs> and I looked back down the fairway and I thought, how did I get my ball onto the screen? I just… I was done in. I could barely remember who I was. Now you see, you can be done in in the Christian life, discouraged by your failure, oppressed by others, feeling you've made a mess of it, struggling. And you need to revisit the truth of the gospel. Actually, I think it was a couple of years ago my identity was stolen. But the thing was this, I I was sent a new, I think it was a bank card. And the first thing I knew I'd been sent a bank card was when I had a letter from the bank saying, did you make the following purchases? They were all made in rapid succession. Somebody had stolen my bank card even before I had my bank card. Now, that could be true of you too. You didn't even know you were somebody who had died to sin and been raised to newness of life, and your real identity almost stolen stolen before you knew it. That's why it's so important for us to face downwards into the Scriptures, say to the Lord, Lord, help me to grasp this. Help me to grasp the strength of Your grace in Jesus Christ that provides me with such a strong foundation in my new identity in Jesus Christ that I will begin to think of myself as somebody who actually has been so radically transformed that I'm no longer under the dominion of sin. And when Satan comes and whispers, you're just under the dominion of sin like everybody else, I'm able to say to him, on the contrary, baptizatu sum. I'm baptized. And I understand through faith in Jesus Christ, all that that baptism symbolized that I was brought into this new family. And yes, just like a child who's adopted, I struggle with my new identity. I have to work hard at it, and others around me have to work hard, and the heavenly Father has got to keep speaking to me and keep addressing me through His Word so that I begin to think clearly about who I am in Jesus Christ. because you see at the end of the day there is a sense in which the christian life is not so much something that i do although my there is plenty to do the christian life is something that's done to me yes i work out my salvation in fear and trembling as paul says in philippians 2:12 and 13 but only because God has been at work in me both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Wasn't it Archimedes that said if he could find somewhere solid to stand and a lever long enough, he could move the earth? And we need somewhere to stand if the lever of the gospel is to transform our lives. So, in a sense, as we return in these coming weeks to Paul's letter to the Romans, this is simply an appeal to you. Bathe your minds in the teaching that the apostle gives, because it will change your life. And do you want some things to do? Then in God's mercy, be here in this place next Lord's Day evening at 6 o'clock. And in Romans six, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, 13, 14, Paul will give you plenty to do. Well may God bless us in the rest of this week. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your presence. We thank You especially for the way in which we feel joined with Christians this evening in Uganda, some of whom we know and have come to love. We pray that we may more and more be strong Christians so that we may serve you on and on for your glory. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus our Savior's sake. Amen.